I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast, Listen for the Word Today. Today, we're going to be looking at John 6, 51 through 58. This is a continuation of where we've been the last couple weeks. And uh, this this verse today takes us for quite a spin, and I think you'll find it very interesting as we dig into this, um, especially in terms of our sacramental theology. So, um, Alan, just get put us into the context today. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um um, yeah, our, our lesson does give things a bit of a spin, and, um, you know, f- we've sort of been tracking up to now with a certain kind of perspective that, you know, Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Um, with, our, with our lesson today, we, we do shift gears quite a bit. Um, you know, at the beginning of chapter six, we saw the feeding miracle and we said that that sets the stage for the bread of life discourse. In the next segment, we saw how that set up the situation for Jesus to be able to say that he is the son of man who has been sealed by God and who will give them the food that that endures for eternal life. Or more succinctly, he says that he is the bread of life or the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then in the Bread of Life discourse proper, as we saw last week, Jesus emphasizes several points. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And again, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. So again, the subject is eternal life, but the fact that Jesus is using bread as an analogy for eternal life, along with the fact that he identifies himself as the bread, that's, that's a, an important point. He identifies himself as the bread that gives eternal life. That creates a unique situation. Yeah, very much so. So is the emphasis here on, on the bread? I mean, when you, I, think, I mean, I think you said it wasn't, but yet when I read it, I, I read bread. It I sounds hear bread. Like it and, and it I sounds think, like it, but I think we have to understand what is the bread, you know, and he's going to tell us that, you know, right off the beginning, that the bread of life that he gives the bread of life is his flesh basically so he you know he maintains that identification of himself as the bread so it seems like we're seeing a shift from from or or maybe a combination from this whole image of bread from this whole physicality of bread to the spiritual significance of 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 jesus Am I am I right? Am I, I would say I would that? say I would say it's the opposite. Actually, I think in the early parts we have more of a, a focus on Jesus um, as the one who brings the words of life, and so the primary response is to is to believe. In this passage, the primary response is to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and so it's it's really more um, I think uh, sacramental. And and uh, you know we we've mentioned several times that there's some sacramental undertones in the narrative all along right um, right the language of the bread that gives life to the world and the food that endures to eternal life though i think those are sacramental um allusions well, yeah i think so. you know as and I, again I, i'm coming at this today from kind of a let's just say um not not from the educated point of view but for somebody who is just participating in the church and mm-hmm. so you grow up seeing sacraments you grow up bread and wine. You, so I think coming to this passage, you might come to it and see that 
first mm-hmm. before you would so and maybe that's why I asked that question before you would see um the more spiritual aspects of it. That and is, I think that's probably, um, as we get into the discussion, we'll see that's probably what was intended um, uh, with this. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I, I think you can't stop with the bread and the wine, but but I think I think that was kind of the intention of this passage probably originally. Uh, and maybe, it, it, sorry, it's taking us way out of space, but you know, when when did the early church start practicing the the Eucharist is a regular part. I, I assume it was quite early on. Well, as, of, as as we'll see, I, you know, I quote Ignatius, and right. he's early second century, so right. very early. So you very know, early, this, they're, got, they're doing this. Yes, like maybe yeah. they started this really shortly. I mean, I think I think we could say that that John's Gospel reflects, you know, that tendency already. Right. With the so, language uh, that's used here in this. So passage. that would make sense that people might come to this hearing it within the context of what they're doing. Right. Um, right. Interesting. Okay, yeah. let's, go, let's go on. So, as I said, I mean, there's, some, there's, there's sacramental undertones, some sacramental allusions all, all the way through this chapter, but the primary emphasis up to here seems to be on believing the one whom God sent, as he said in verse mm-hmm. 29. And, and so Jesus makes the connection between the feeding miracle, the bread of life, hunger and thirst, and believing in right. John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, um, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So you've got the language right. of, you've got all that language, you know, the, you've got the feeding miracle, you've got the bread of right. life, you've got hunger and thirst, and it's all connected with believing Jesus. Yes. So it's okay. more of a word-based kind of thing. Right. Here. It's yeah. more of a response to Jesus' teachings here. And then it shifts, though. It's going to shift, right? You know, it's going to. But, you know, we can, and we can recognize some sacramental undertones in, in that language, especially when Jesus identifies himself as the bread right. that gives eternal life. Right. That, that starts to get you thinking in terms of that more physical. physical right. But, but the primary emphasis up to this point seems to be on believing, okay. more the spiritual approach, I guess, on believing as a response that enables one to experience eternal Interesting. life. Interesting. Okay. Okay. But in, 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 it's, in chapter, it's in verse 61, really, that there is this uh, almost neck-wrenching shift if you're, if you're coming along. And, and I think it creates a problem for a lot of folks. Um, the shift is not only in the theme, but also in the language. I mean, just the language of eating Right, that's a very physical. So much more prominent, um, you know. And, and you know, again, in the preceding sections, the illusion was there, but here, this language becomes very explicit. Jesus says explicitly in verse fifty-four: "Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day." I think it's hard not to see this as having some reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Right. I think so too. I think so too, especially again within the context we've just set up that yeah. they're already practicing this in the church before, yeah. prior to John writing exactly. this. Writing yeah. this exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, Paul's Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul's first letter, first letter to the Corinthians, dated AD fifty five, is is our first right, historical exactly. reference to yeah. the practice of the of the Lord's Supper. Right. So so I mean, you know, <laughs> it's very exactly. clear. I think that later. this was something that would have ha- would have been the background for John's gospel. Yeah, yeah. It, it, what's striking me about this and taking us through it in this way, if we're reading it. 
our minds are coming enmeshed in the idea of belief, and mm-hmm. then the physical comes Shifts in. Shifts gears. That's right. right. And so this is making sense. The physical comes in. So if you have been taking this, and you're, you're, in other words, and I may be going too far, believing slash equals eating. If you're eating, it's part of your belief process. I don't know that it's spelled out that that explicitly here, and and I think the I think the the reason is because we're looking at a different. I think we're looking at a passage that originated in a different setting and was was brought into this setting because of the connection with the Bread of Life discourse. Mm. And here I'm following Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown believes this to be the Johannine version, our passage for today. This is the Johannine version, or at least reflects the Johannine version of Jesus' words of institution Mm -hmm. for the Lord's Supper. And his theory, which makes the most sense to me out of the various options I found, is that the authors or editors of John's Gospel took the version of the Last Supper they had and transposed it here, probably because of a thematic connection mm-hmm. with the oh, Bread of okay. Life discourse. Oh, okay. So, so I think what we're looking at is is sort of a text that originated in the Johannine tradition as the, the account of the Last Supper, and it has been transposed into this passage because of the connection with the Bread of Life discourse. Interesting. Now, we have to, again, remember that John's gospel has no account of the Last Supper or the institution of the Lord's Supper, which seems, if you think about it, that's hard to fathom. It really is. Um, um, You know, uh, we're going to see that by the early second century, you know, the, the practice of the Lord's Supper was just central to the Christian faith. And, and I mean, I think, as I mentioned, you know, already in, in the Pauline era, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s, this was something that was done, widely done. And so the fact that one of the Gospels would omit altogether uh, the Last Supper and any kind of institution of the Lord's Supper is, is hard, to, hard to swallow, I think. Well, in my mind is going, I wonder if, in part, that's because it's become um, more of an act that people do more of um, that they've lost the theology behind it. So maybe John is trying to mm. shift that and say, yeah. hey, take a look here. Connect it with yeah, the Bread of Life discourse. That's and, a good idea. I uh, think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Now, um, Brown also points out that the language of eating the flesh and drinking the blood really is out of place anywhere in Jesus' ministry except for the Last Supper. That just doesn't make much sense anywhere else. No. Uh, so I think I, I would agree with Brown that the authors and or editors of the gospel have shifted the account of the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper to this point in mm-hmm. John's gospel, John 6, 51 to 58. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they've, they've put it here as a further reflection on the Bread of Life discourse, or perhaps, yeah. as you suggest, they want to connect sort of the community's understanding of the Lord's Supper with the mm-hmm. Bread of Life discourse. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, part of the challenge with this in terms of us coming to it is just simply with the history of the church. And, yes. and, and some of this has been built into the, the fathers. So right. maybe you could elaborate on some of their ideas. Well, and as I mentioned, Ignatius of Antioch, he, he's one of the earliest church fathers who, who we have. Um, he has some strikingly similar passages that, um, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that really, I mean, kind of confirms this yeah. reading of John's yeah. gospel, of this passage. 
passage of John's gospel that, that um, you know, that perhaps we're on the right track here. In, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, 3, he says, I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, for I drink, for, and for drink I desire his blood, which is incorruptible love. And in the letter to Philadelphians, uh, verse 4, he designates the Eucharist as the one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and as the one cup for union with his blood. And most of this language would tend to support, I think, a sacramental interpretation of these yeah, verses. I think so. But on the other hand, Ignatius does express a more spiritual interpretation in his letter to the Tralians in chapter 8.1. He says, in faith, which is the flesh of the Lord, and in love, which is the blood oh, right. of Christ. Right, that's a more spiritual take. Yes, it is, mm-hmm. very much so. And echoes some of the more spiritual ideas mm-hmm. that we saw earlier in the chapter. Now, Ignatius will go beyond, I think, what we find in John's gospel. In in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 220, he identifies breaking bread as the medicine of immortality. And I would be surprised if that phrase didn't echo throughout the history of the church. Yeah. (laughs) And, And the antidote that we should not die. And so, um, again, I think what we find in Ignatius are some echoes that confirm that perhaps the early church, in the early church, this passage was read with um, reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, so, now, they may have had, I think, I think Ignatius may have had some ideas about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we might not agree with. And the other thing I'm noticing with writers as a whole is I feel like at times they're they're expounding and they're kind of examining their own experience. Well, mm-hmm. and then sometimes we take that as being well, that's how it is. And mm-hmm. and I I think we we're seeing that here with Ignatius as well because we're seeing a, right. a couple different. But yeah, yeah, and that's that's one thing I wanted to call our attention to. You know, we do see some fluidity even in Ignatius's view of the of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, it's not that he's lockstep in in any one particular view. Right. But I think I think you're right. He's reflecting his experience. He's reflecting the experience of his churches and perhaps reflecting his understanding right. of, of the biblical text. Yeah. So what about the later fathers? Well, as, as you probably know, the later fathers debated the idea. Yes. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Eusebius understood the whole bread of life discourse as a reference to faith, faith in, in Christ. Christ. And that's it. Yes. It's just, it, there's no sacramental reference whatsoever. Augustine in, interpreted the idea of Jesus giving his flesh for the life of the world simply as a reference to the crucifixion. And there are a lot of folks who still follow that today. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa was one who viewed it as a reference to the Eucharist and probably um, was one of many who followed him. So there was there was a debate even in yes. the formative period of the Catholic Church, you right. know, as to as right. to what this passage. And of course, meant. you have to realize, and I don't think we do, is that I mean, there's no unified liturgy yet. There's no mm-hmm. unified. Um, I mean, we do start to get the in the beginnings of some some doctrine, unified doctrine with Nicaea and Chalcedon, but we don't. We still don't have a completely unified church. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really comes into it's more regional. Six, it's more regional. Yeah, and um, and I think some of the origins, perhaps, of the liturgy are, are found in in some of the earlier times, but. Um, but yes. but but right. I mean, you know, the the fact the it's we can't view the early the Catholic Church in this early period as being sort of uh, monolithic. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, 
I think it's, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a sixth century with the Gregory the Great. And, yeah. and even later, you know, I know from my studies that even later than that, there's still pockets that right. create their own oh, liturgies. Yeah. Let's keep moving forward about the details of this text. Yeah, so when we look at this text, the passage starts out straightforward enough. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And we can read that just as we have been reading the passage all along, you know, that it's primarily a call to faith in Jesus. But um, the language shifts abruptly. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Brown had an interesting suggestion. I don't know that we can demonstrate this, but he he said that, um, um, you know, there was no word, there was no word in Aramaic that was distinct. There was no distinction between flesh and body. Mm-hmm. They used one word, basar, which is flesh. And so that perhaps the language that we have in John here may reflect the original Aramaic of Jesus' words of institution. This right. is it's my flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I don't know that we can verify that for sure, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, you know, obviously, in the synoptic version of the Last Supper, we you know we have the language of body, and perhaps right. that was adopted to avoid the offensive connotations of well, flesh. Yeah, and and here here we have I think here we have another another case where. Perhaps, um, you know, the Gospels were, the the Gospel tradition was originally uh, um, uh, composed in Greek because, you know, the the difference between Soma and Sarx, body and flesh, makes sense in Greek. But, you know, perhaps, as Brown is suggesting, there there is no such distinction in Aramaic. Well, and presumably if the first followers of Jesus would have been doing this yeah, in they Aramaic. They, and they would have, but they would have understood, I think they would have understood it from the mm. standpoint of body as the, as the synoptics yeah. did. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so, um, and we have some translations issues here with our we revised do. standard. Yeah, the new revised standard is, is uh, the translation, uh, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's fairly standard across the board of standard English translations, but it doesn't accurately reflect the word order in the Greek New Testament. And the bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. That's a literal word, you know, more literal following the word order. And surprisingly, I, I, you know, the NIV does a better job. The This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the yeah. world. And this is the way the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the New Century Version, and the New American Bible all handle the passage. Mm-hmm. Also, we've got the contemporary English Version. My flesh is the life-giving bread that I will give for the world that I give to the people of this world. And the today's English version or good news translation is the bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give so that the world may live. And I think the, the thing about these translations that's important is that they preserve the emphasis in the, in the Greek on yeah. identifying the bread as Jesus flesh. And that's something I think that the New Revised Standard Version kind of buries by the mm-hmm. way and the word order that they adopt in their translation. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, I was talking about word order. Is there a difference between word order and intent here? I mean, sometimes, I mean, is the intent, intent the way it's supposed to be in the Greek? Or do you think because of this more spiritual view we get earlier that the intent is? I, I, think, I think this is intentional. Okay. I, think the, I think it's because it, it's, it reads a little bit awkward in the Greek as well. And so uh. I think the intention is to focus. This bread is my flesh. So the, right. the bread that gives eternal life is my flesh. 
And so I think I think that identification mm-hmm. is primary mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And so we should see the other aspects of the verse as being more um, uh, sort of modifying right. that statement. But the main statement is, this bread is my flesh. Okay. Okay. And if you look at it, I mean, that's just from yeah. a purely grammatical standpoint. Right, right, Subject, right. verb, object, you know, the, this bread is it's my, my flesh. flesh. It's yeah. very, it's very clear. It's very, it's very physical. And yet, and, and this is taking me to how often, especially in our modern world, we like to, we like to cover up that, f- that flesh. Well, we do language. because we're uncomfortable with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about that in seminary with, you know, our fear of using the word blood, mm-hmm. taking, taking hymns out of our hymnal mm-hmm. that use blood. Mm-hmm. And yet at this time, well, I think even today, really, it, it does, it, it has a, an intensity about what those flesh words do. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Moving on. Okay, this is kind of a big deal because our next thing is how the Jews respond right. to this. And again, remember, the Jews, are, are that's code right. probably for the Jewish leaders code. in John's gospel. Yes. And, and John's gospel tells us that they disputed or argued or perhaps even fought among themselves about this. And, uh, you know, it raises the question, were there some people who were defending Jesus about this? Because that's, that's an right. interesting question. But I think here we can see that the abhorrence connected with the idea of eating human human flesh was very much a part of the Jewish mindset. And so they asked, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which seems like a very logical question. Right, right. right. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, it's kind of interesting because Jesus doesn't make it easier for them. He doesn't explain anything, but rather he just sort of uh, pushes the point even further home. Uh, Truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them, just as the living Father Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. So that whole yeah. thing just kind of, I think, sort of reinforces and even makes the pro- problem much more um, difficult for those who are, who are stumbling over this, this idea that he, his, he's going to give his flesh and that, 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 that uh, somehow we're, we are to eat that flesh. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's this... It's it, it when we think about it in terms of in our modern sensibilities, it is alarming, and yet there is this sense of we all see eating as is essential for living. We don't all see believing as essential for living. So mm. it really ties, it really pulls mm. in the strength of yeah. of what that means, of, of what life means. Yeah. Now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, in response to the disciples' questions next week, as we look at the passage, the the final passage in John 6, we'll see that Jesus will say, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is useless, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, which kind of, I think, probably was part of the original bread of life discourse and kind of bring the whole chapter back to that original focus focus of responding to Jesus in faith. But I don't think, but I think it's hard not to see these verses, particularly John 6, 53 to 57, as a reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The, The language of eating flesh and drinking blood would not fit the idea of hearing Jesus' teachings and responding in faith. That just simply 
there's no there's no framework in which right. yeah. eating flesh uh, yeah. and drinking blood have that have that connotation and i i think again as brown has suggested i think this language only fits the setting of the sacrament of the lord's supper mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so again i i think what we have here is perhaps a reflection of the at least from the johannian tradition jesus words of institution and and perhaps in a frame in a in a form that we're very unaccustomed to you know we're much more used to the synoptic words of institution because right. there's been a I mean, there's been debate in the, even in the biblical community about whether or not these words reflect Jesus' um, words of institution. Right. But if we see this as, as reflecting Jesus' words of institution in the Johannine tradition, then it gives us a kind of a, a, a different look at how Jesus spoke about, him, about the, the, the Lord's Supper and about, about, him, about his, you know, what that meant to right. observe the Lord's Supper. Right, right, yeah. which I think would might make sense again within the context of John writing this to John's yes. audience. Yeah. yeah okay. Surely. So my my question is does I think the tendency is to see this then does the sacrament have salvific properties? Right. I mean, do you take this and and then you're saved because you took it? Uh, I don't think it's necessary to read these verses as reflecting that idea that the that the eating of the sacrament itself is what is salvific. I th- I think you know as you suggested. I mean, we're I think we're meant to 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 interpret the bread of life discourse in light of these sayings that reflect more the sacrament of the Lord's supper. But I think we're also meant to reflect the Lord the sacrament of the Lord's supper in light of the bread of life discourse. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're meant to hold those two sort of together and interpret them in light of one another. Mm-hmm. And and um, I think that's kind of a brilliant move, actually, because yeah, I, think so. I think it, you know, whereas Jesus may have used this very literal physical language for... Uh, the elements of the Last Supper and and for in and and in the institution of the Lord's Supper originally in Aramaic, you know, I th- I think the 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 authors and or editors of John's Gospel want to connect it with the Bread of Life discourse so that we don't go into that idea right. that it's just the eating of the right, of the food right. of the bread and the drinking of the wine that conveys salvation, but yeah. rather it is connected with a broader response mm-hmm, to Jesus mm-hmm, of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I yeah, I think so. And so, I mean, you know, really, if you look at the language of the sacrament reflected in the New Testament as a whole, eating the bread and drinking the cup are seen as an anticipation of the messianic banquet in the kingdom of God, which seems to be a primary emphasis here. Those who participate in the sacrament are those whom Jesus will raise up on the last day and they will live because of me. Uh, now again, it's because of me, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Now there is a shift in the theology of salvation in John's gospel here. Up to this point, we've really seen this idea that, that all those whom the father give to me will come to me. Only those whom the father give to me will come to me. So it's God who is the primary agent mm-hmm. in salvation. And here Jesus is the one who is giving life, uh, giving eternal life himself. Nevertheless, I think the idea remains that Jesus is the one through whom we have this life based on his death, resurrection, and ascension. And, you know, I think it's I think it's consistent with the soteriology that we find in, in John's gospel elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should read this any differently. You know, I don't think we should read this language as, as suggesting that the actual eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, you know, convey right. salvation. It strikes me as though 
a tendency for popular culture to view it that mm-hmm. way. Right. You know, and unfortunately, here we have some rather naive biblicism, and we're all faced with this in our, in our congregations. Folks just read the words, and they say, well, that's what it means to me. But we're, we're, we're looking at some passages where it requires a little bit more sophisticated approach to biblical interpretation. Yeah. So we have to look at this in light of what the synoptic gospels, how the synoptic gospels convey the words of institution. We have to look at this in light of the, the fact that for some reason, the authors and editors of John's gospel have chosen to, to transpose these perhaps original words of institution in the Johannine tradition into conjunction, into connection with the Bread of Life discourse so that you've got an interpretive interplay going on mm-hmm. there. And, and then beyond that, it's a matter of, of you know, recognizing uh, what is the soteriology of John's gospel as a whole. Right, as a whole. I, and I don't think John's gospel as a whole supports an idea that simply eating bread and drinking the cup exactly. in, in the sacrament um, convey salvation. I agree, yeah. I agree. So let's, uh, let's conclude this. Um, what, you know, what... What is this theme of spiritual nourishment? Well, I think we do, you know, and that's one of the major emphases in the Reformed interpretation of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I think we do see a theme of spiritual nourishment reflected in the statement that my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And as well, that, that... that statement that I quoted earlier, you know, the, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless, you know. I think that reflects the idea that, you know, um, that, the, that, that part of the primary value of, of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is one of spiritual nourishment. And so I see it as consistent with uh, the language of the Book of Order in, in the Directory for Worship that the Lord's Supper enacts and seals what the Word proclaims, God's sustaining grace offered to all people. The Lord's Supper is at once God's gift of grace, God's Mm -hmm. means of grace, and God's call to respond to that grace. Through the Lord's Supper, Jesus nourishes us in righteousness, faithfulness, and discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so I think the language of the sacrament that we hear in this passage of John's gospel but may be strange to our ears, but I think it's entirely consistent yeah. with our theology of the sacrament. I, I agree. I think it's important for us to say that, you know, it is a gift of grace, it is a means of grace, it is a call to respond to grace, you know, that, that yeah. there is something spiritual that is right, happening right. here. And, and it is not just a symbolic observation right. and remembrance of Jesus. It yeah. is more than that. Yeah, and, and and I think I think this this passage in John's Gospel, you know, supports that. that I, I do too. I do too. And I think it's, in fact, I think it's it's brilliant um, at at reaching to the words that that requires to just move beyond just thinking of it as mm-hmm. as, as a as a memorial, but but really into thinking about what sustains us and yeah. and pulling us in. Yeah. Um, well, in fact, yeah. in fact, um, in fact, I've I've. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking, I wonder if there's a way in, that I can adapt some of this language for the way in which I Ooh, lead the cool? Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because if it's if it does reflect the Johannine version of of the words of institution, I think that would be appropriate. Be, I think so too, yeah. and I think it would um, it would awaken some eyes that maybe. Mm-hmm. Of people that are just going through the motions of right, this, right? Right. They hear the same words we every time you every time yeah. you celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. We'll be back talking about um, uh, about this great controversy of the sacraments and um, that the reformers did. Thanks. Thanks.
We're back, friends, and uh, I sort of uh, gave Christy the assist and passed the ball to her regarding sacramental theology, so now we're going to get into the real <laughs> sticky wicket of the game here with, uh, with the debate about sacramental theology. So take it away, Christy. Oh, thank you, Alan. This, um, what we would call in the Reformation world is a Eucharistic controversy. And of course, this is really what happens um, during the Lord's Supper. And this is a really, really big deal during the Protestant Reformation. And I think when we think about the practice of the Eucharist, this is central to who we are as Christians. It's a central practice, whether we call it an ordinance or whether we call it the Mass. This is central to who we are as Christians. Um, but I think most of us in the modern day kind of forget its significance in some ways. Not that we still practice it, but we tend to think that our differences in opinion about it are really just semantics. And actually, I, I want you to kind of maybe rethink about how important this is um, because it, it reflects an underlying theology which then really shapes who we are. And so, in other words, this is a really, really big deal. It is indeed. And it's important for us to know that you know that is the main reason that the reformers could not come together. Right. Um, and that's why we have different yeah, branches of the refer- exactly. Reformation. And yeah. in today's world, we tend to think, well, gosh, are they overemphasizing that? Um, I think we're spending more time in the contemporary world really thinking about baptism, infant baptism uh, versus yeah. adult baptism, than we are about the practice of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, I want you to, so I want to kind of dig back in today to get us thinking about the significance. Um, and as we already mentioned, it's, it's the Reformers absolutely weren't of the same opinion. And for the f- few ideas I'm going to present today, I want you to, th- to envision the whole spectrum of ideas of what happens um, is in the Reformation dialogue. And that it is working. So you will find Luther using some language at the beginning of his ministry that starts to shift towards the end. Um, so you're also seeing people interact with the scripture and interact with the tradition and and develop their ideas about it. So um, it's really easy to say, well, Luther didn't really believe this because he wrote this in 1525 mm-hmm. when they don't realize what he finally wrote in 1543. So mm-hmm. um, keep that in mind as well. So, But the whole spectrum is there. But I want to um, give you basically the three three main positions today that are often still talked about, um, just to keep them in your mind. In the Roman Catholic tradition, and it is today the idea of transubstantiation, this idea that the bread and the wine transform into the body and blood of Christ. Um, and it is a different space. It is a sacrifice. So it has a different kind of space. And, you, and sometimes I'll hear folks come in and they'll say, well, do you celebrate the mass? And it's like, we celebrate the Lord's supper. Mm -hmm. And so that's, but that's position one. You're all familiar with it, but just to put it then Luther's position, I find when I'm reading stuff that it is misunderstood. His ultimate position on this is that the elements remain bread and wine in substance, but that the real presence of Christ comes in through and under the elements. Yeah. One of the important things I want to point out, because I hear this a lot, and we like to be educated as Presbyterians, I hear that Luther's position is consubstantiation. That is not accurate. Mm. (laughs) Don't use that. It is not with. It is not that it's both. It's that it comes in through and under. 
and, and yeah, because Luther insisted that the bread remains bread and the wine remains exactly, wine. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and then Calvin's position, um, which of course is is probably the main reform position, that the elements remain bread and wine, but the meal serves as a seal of our union with Christ, and that Christ is spiritually present in the elements. Again, there's no corporal presence there, but the spiritual presence when you would partake of it. It is a seal of that union, of course, and that's very Calvinistic mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I think Alan mentioned earlier, you know, some of the other positions. Zwingli, this is a symbol. There's, there's no presence at all. It is really just a reflection of the visible church participating in this symbol of faith. I also wrote down Echolampadius because I think he's kind of got an interesting position that the word and divinity dwell in the flesh. And it is food because all are sustained by that divinity. But if you eat this without faith, you won't be fed. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's divine food if you have faith, and if it's not, it's just bread and, and wine. Yeah, exactly, huh, exactly. And there's really not a problem if you take the meal and you are of any of the reformed traditions if you don't if you don't believe because the substance is still just bread right. and wine right. it does become a problem theologically if indeed it is the body and right. blood of Christ and what if you partake of it but you don't believe in it and right. that becomes particularly with the mass a big deal mm-hmm. um, and in fact um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they were so concerned about the spilling of the blood of Christ and not being able to properly take care of it by the laity that the laity simply didn't get it. Right. So they're just given the bread. And then if you watch carefully, if you go to Mass, you know they'll be very careful that make sure they don't spill any crumbs because it is, mm-hmm. in that theology, the body of Christ. Well, and, and it, the, the elements themselves... Mm-hmm. convey salvation the eating exactly. and the consuming yes. of the elements themselves i want to emphasize kind of the difference in the positions of what would be the reformed tradition and the lutheran tradition um and probably the main they both emphasize grace that's huge but for lutherans the sacrament was an assurance of salvation uh first um whereas the other emphasized those drawn to it. It is um, that kind of assurance in the body of Christ that you're there. So again, and you, you know that from our practice at church, right? If you're handing it out and everyone's mm-hmm. taking it together and they're, they're strengthened in their faith, they're assured of their identity in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more about the bigger body, if you will, than it is about that the kind individual. of individual mm-hmm. salvation. Yeah. Um, but in all cases, um, well, it, it, particularly the Reformed tradition, is really, again, not a big deal if someone takes it um, that is not eligible. But Lutheran there is, and, and the Lutheran tradition has been a little bit stricter about allowing people to take communion than in the Reformed tradition. But yeah, surely. I, I've been to, to a Missouri Synod church where you know they had on the back of their bulletin, these are the main tenets of our faith. Unless you agree with them, please do not. Please exactly. Do not participate in, exactly. In the sacrament. Well, and those are some of the you know those are some of the big question marks. Um, let's let's move on just a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the specifics because obviously this passage in particular um, 
uh, was part of the. I mean, they saw it as as part of the sacramental theology, mm-hmm. um, and was one. There of the was big kind pieces. of no question the, about that. Really, yeah. no question. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. when you have, and, and we talked about it earlier, when you have uh, bread um, and feeding, you immediately are, are drawn to the idea of this Lord's Supper, especially noticing, my blood, yeah. <laughs> which they did, that John didn't have an account of the Lord's right. Supper. So they, right. they noticed those same things and said, mm-hmm. uh, well, this is pretty obvious. One of the, th- one of the big challenges um, is to define the mystery of God within a context of human language and finding um, the appropriate formulations for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And it's not necessarily easy. Um well, I would say that's true, you know, even today. I mean, we have the language articulated for us in the Directory for Worship right, and in right. the Confessions, but, you know, actually using that language in a way that people understand is a challenge. Exactly. So the larger question is, what does the language really, really mean? And for example, if you're using the sign like Calvin does, what what does what is a sign? Is it simply a signatory of something else, or can sign itself include the presence. So they got really caught up with hmm. language, what the language was in in the scripture and what that what that contained. So uh, you know, in my world, a sign does not necessarily would not contain something in it, but they mm-hmm. they asked that question and it really has to do with the substance of of um uh, what what a substance is? It gets to some of the ideas of of of, of Plato, even you know where yeah. you you know. I was going to say there's there's definitely some philosoph. I think there's definitely some philosophical um, um, influence from the tradition of the medieval scholastics because that's that's right where they lived. You know, they exactly. debated all of these exactly. details. You know, could Christ be present in the mass mm-hmm. if Christ is sitting at the right hand mm-hmm. of the Father? Right. No, I, you know, and, and so a lot of these issues, but again, this is the kinds of things that came into their thoughts about, about how, how Christ is present in, in, in these elements. And to what extent, I think a lot of people, and particularly we're also on the heels, remind you of the scientific revolution, a lot of people aren't buying transubstantiation. It just doesn't, ring with their reason mm-hmm. that they're starting to develop. I, it does not. I'm still eating. It tastes like bread. It tastes mm-hmm. like wine. It is not, you know. And so how do you make sense of that? Your reason tells you that's probably not what what's happening. And so I'm a lot of my research today um, centered on um, a brilliant scholar, Amy Nelson Burnett, who d- works extensively with the Eucharistic controversy Um and uh, she, she really looked at how it's transmitted. But I think it's interesting today because she was talking about that the texts that are written in the early Reformations, um, um, that those texts were hesitant to, um, hesitant to criticize the mass tradition. They were hesitant um, to criticize that this, the transformation that took place. And so it's really with the later Reformation, which is coinciding with the, pro- the, the scientific revolution, where people are coming out and they're getting more vocal about mm. condemning that transubstantiation. Yeah. So you start to hear ideas, things that don't necessarily conflict with it, like, well, there's a spiritual presence in it. 
that doesn't conflict in of itself course. with transubstantiation. But yet, yeah, the, the the early the, so this is very ingrained in in people, and also, uh, so you see a process by which it starts to kind of emerge. Well, in my mind, it, it sort of shows the lingering influence of centuries of of, yeah. of liturgical practice, exactly, you know? and that's exactly. not something that changes yeah. easily. But, of course, that is running up against, you know, during the Reformation where they're so concerned what the biblical authority. We have to go back to the scripture. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what does that have? Um, And so we get this really interesting, you know, scattering of ideas. Um, Remember, we have the radical reformers. And they are going to get rid of all the practices, including the sacraments. Um, And, of course, I'm not as hard, quite as hard on the on the Baptists, even as Alan is, because the Anabaptist tradition is looped in with the more conservative tradition. Well, so. and, and the Anabaptists were sort of spiritual cousins to the more strictly Reformed tradition. Exactly, so exactly. I, and I'm not, and I, you know, quite frankly, I appreciate some of the Anabaptist uh, theologians Absolute, of the Reformation absolutely. era. Absolutely. Because they had, some, they had some, you know, some contributions to make. They had lots discussion. of women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did they? Yeah. Yes, they yeah, did. There There's go. a whole nice. bunch. That's a conversation for another day. There were a whole bunch of Anabaptist women who were mm-hmm. preaching and they were writing, um, and they were heavily persecuted yeah, too. But yeah. they were they were pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, um, so they the big question is they didn't they didn't get rid of except for maybe the radicals the <laughs> the practice of 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 the uh, um, Lord's Supper that was indeed identified as being scriptural. Not only was it a practice of the church, you know, they did get mm-hmm. away of the five additional sacraments. Mm-hmm that the, the medieval church had adopted that the current Roman Catholic church identifies. But um, they did recognize the two um, as instituted by Christ. Um, so, um, and they did come to, look, your participation in the sacraments is a sign of the visible church. Um, and, uh, and, of course, what does that mean? Does it mean that they are denying your call if they will not allow you to participate? And who gets to make the decision? Um, and yet, if you're behaving in a way that would go against God's expectations, do you have a right to be at the table? Can, mm-hmm. we, can we fence the table? And so we get into a lot in this discussion, a lot about authority in the church. Mm-hmm. Who makes that? And in today's world, it's me. Right. I get to decide whether I am worthy, in fact, I think even in our language today is you need to examine yourself before mm-hmm. you take sure. the Lord's Supper. Sure. Um, but earlier times or Roman Catholic Church, it's them. Of they course. decide. Uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran, they decide. Um, and so Well, and uh, even even in, in this church, um, back in the 70s, one of the roles of the pastor was to make an mm-hmm. annual visit to every member to discuss with them whether their participation in the church was sufficient for them to be able to take communion yes. the next year. Yes, so this <laughs> even went into some of the Reformed traditions yeah. as well. If you are not practicing and abiding by the kinds of conduct that you would expect out of some responding in Christ, are you indeed part of the visible church? And mm-hmm. and this is really an interesting shift and very non-modern, if you will, compared to what we expect today. And yet it's one of the big conflicts I think we run up against today. Um, so um, important. So all these questions are out there and, um, um, thinking about, we have the sacramentarians, that would include your reform tradition, those, um, those who 
don't see it as 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 a mass. Don't see this whole thing of transubstantiation. Don't see the real presence. Um, and a lot of it depends on how they come to scripture, um, how they how they're looking at it. So, are you looking at like today, just pulling out those individual words? And saying, well, these words say this, and therefore, this is a transformation? Or are you looking, as Alan was talking about, like we would today, in a more modern view, looking at the whole tradition of the church, the intent of the narrative? Um, and that's where they s- disagree. So even though the important thing is all these folks are looking at Scripture to try to gain their answers, but what they conclude is not necessarily yeah. the same thing. So all these people come up with all these different things. So for Bootser and Bullinger, two of our Reformed dudes in, 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 in the Swiss Reformation, they claim all of this, Jesus talking about the body and the bread, are obviously figurative. No doubt in their it's mind. totally symbolic. It's totally symbolic. Mm-hmm. There's no other way. Um, however, that same language by the Catholic, Roman Catholic writers is obvious that this is eating the flesh. It's, it's eating that bread. Um, and, uh, and so the bread becomes yes, the body of Christ. The bread becomes it. Um, and I think it's interesting, and they go into different kinds of arguments about it. Um, Bootser goes on to claim, look, even this idea that Jews are horrified by eating the flesh is just an emphasis that they don't really get the message that Jesus is trying to say, which is that this is allegorical, that this is not that mm-hmm. physical this is supposed to offend you because you don't get it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I thought that was an interesting take for him. Sure. Um, Wolfgang Musculus, he's another fellow we've, we've talked to a lot. He's a member, he's the German, but he's somewhat influenced by the, the um, Swiss reformers. And he goes so far to say that the way the church used the blood and the sacrament actually perverted what Christ was trying to say. And, and, he, you, and by that, you mean the Catholic church, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. The church, right? The right. medieval church. Right. We see here how the flesh is not only blind and inept in its understanding of Christ's <laughs> words, but it is perverse in the way it recalls those words. <laughs> it recalls them in such a way that it obstructs itself more and more from the true understanding of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish he would tell us what he really thinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, another one. So he's kind of on that same page if, uh, of Bootser, but still... As I said, he st- remains Lutheran, but he's, he's in that conversation with the Reformers. Um, but yet the Roman Catholics see it as simple and obvious of Christ's intent. Why are the Reformers trying to obscure so simple of an instruction? Yeah, you know? right. Um, but uh, it doesn't cons- they aren't considering the breadth of Scripture in this. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and also there's this idea that this is the Scripture of the Eucharist. Um, so they do see it as as words of institution. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, we've talked about the Roman Catholic reformers that this that this is indeed um, a physical sustenance, right? Mm-hmm. That this it, in a part is part of the the faith process. Um, and then, of course, we already mentioned Calvin, but just to reiterate, Calvin regards this passage as the meat of the Lord's Supper and as a seal of this particular discourse. Um, but notes that it is not the eating that brings forth faith, but rather that it is the faith that brings about eternal life. And he claims that it does not make sense to claim that this is a replacement for the Lord's Supper and in itself a call to the Supper. Um, so he's, his argument is John is filling in information that's provided in 
the uh, the synoptics. So I think it's interesting. He he said this this reflects this. He and, and it had to come after. It's like it's it's like putting an exclamation point uh. on the supper that that um, um, to make sense of it that that is actually in in its terms of it's trying to put it in chronology happening later. So that so that the, so that John, this account from John is is more of a theological reflection yep. on the synoptic tradition. Yes yeah. yes yes yeah. yes. It's contained in the other gospels um, mm, and is a reminder to the role of faith in eternal life. The great harmonizer. The great harmonizer. <laughs> He's got to do it. He has got to do it. Um, um, and. All this debate, you know, again, this is intellectual debate. This is intellectual stuff, but it doesn't remain there. And so one of the pieces is how does this work itself its way into the actual church? How mm-hmm. is it presented to the laity? Now, again, even today if we go out there and we start to talk with folks about what happens, most of them probably don't have a very good idea. And yet in the Reformation, this is, getting, this is the big debate, and it's getting out to the laity and how. Um, and so, uh, big, the big deal is, of course, the printing press, mm-hmm. right? So we have Luther, born in 1485, you know, uh, begins Reformation in 1517. We, be, we see the Gutenberg Bible, the first printing in 1455. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the printing press being around for about 50, 60 years, and it's exploding. Um, and publishing's exploding. And don't pretend it's not like it is today. They print with cells. Yeah. So, this is obviously being represented in different ways. It's pre- being presented in the service. Um, preaching is a part of it. How it's being presented at the table is different. The lady all of a sudden can take the, the wine. I mean, so it's shifting. So, people are curious about it. So, we begin to print about it. And, of course, they're printing Luther stuff because Luther sells. Right. So, we do see, and, and this is all from uh, Dr. Burnett's, text, but we do see that Luther's stuff is disseminated the most um, and the most widely um, and the most widely kind of accepted. The other people I'm talking about all had regional publishers. Um, So they're like regional pockets of um, discussion, which I think is interesting. Now, here's (laughs) what is also interesting, that it wasn't a free press. We always come to these things assuming it's a free press. The press is controlled by the city as well as mm. the whole process of reform within the city. Right. So remember, we've talked about this before. If you are living in a certain city, you're going to be Lutheran. If it's Lutheran, that's that's how it they're going to be trained. depends on the prince of that principality, exactly. right? Right. That's the right idea is that you have these individuals that are controlling how people are going to worship and control what they're going to be able to read. And you also see, again, some of these regional areas publishing this stuff, which wasn't necessarily controversial in all cases, allowed to. Now, the Anabaptists, they were (laughs) controversial almost always. In fact, one of the printers, I I work with printers quite a bit, one of the printers I I looked at got kicked out of the city and could not print there anymore. Mm. Um, And you could see it in the city ordinances. So this, this was very typical. They had to be very careful... Um, and they, they pushed their limits, um, thinking what could sell, but not getting kicked out. Right. That was the, that was right. the thing. Luther always sold. So another thing you see are people claiming to be printed by Luther, uh. um, when it's not, and even misspeaking for Luther uh. and even adding the official printed in, you know, Wittenberg, um, 
even though it wasn't. And so imagine it, that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on uh. too, where people are claiming to speak for someone else. So in other words, there's a lot of false news out there in this era. And then of course the pamphlets, which get illicitly printed in these underground kind of presses, um, you know, thrown and strewn about that are, that the lady's picking up on, which is really full of lies. Like, oh my gosh, the Roman Catholics really are eating, you know, the oh, body and blood. That kind gracious. of thing gets out there, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I only point that out because I think, um, I think there's an, I think it has a lot of questions that come to today as we come to the church and we think about what scares us or, or, or as we're dealing with other other faiths of how they come to us and, and they're surprised at our behavior or whatever, our, our, our actions. And um, I think it fundamentally shapes who we are in terms of how we handle all kinds of issues. You know, mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's a deep theological and philosophical underpinnings of being Western Reformed Christians. Sure. Hi, friends. We're back. And uh, as we wrap things up today, we thought we would discuss the question, what difference does it all make? And Christy has some thoughts she wants to share with us, so please do. Yeah, you bet. You know, I was thinking about, as I was prepping for this, thinking about, you know, on a regular basis, I don't know that I hear people sitting, standing on the corners talking about the Eucharist, right? But... It was an interesting, I had these two experiences and I thought maybe I would introduce them. The first was a woman that came up to me and she said, oh, you know, my husband used to be Presbyterian. Do they still sit and have it served to them? And she kind of, she kind of mocked at that tradition. And I, and, um, I thought that was interesting. So somewhere from her and her background was the right way was to go up front. And I thought Mm. that was an interesting Mm. Observation. The other thing that happened the same day, actually, was a family had called me and she said, well, my sister's Lutheran pastor went to go see um, my mother, who was, uh, it was actually a member of our church. Um, and um, she, uh, she had communion with, with her. And so this was a she was not a member of that Lutheran church and communion. And I said, oh, well, I'm happy to bring communion in our tradition. Uh, we have to bring somebody with us. This is, you know, part of our idea of the body of Christ. So oddly enough, in, in conversations of two days were, were, were conversations about the Eucharist. And so I think it does matter because clearly neither one of those people had any theology of it. It just was different than they had it, or it meant a lot to her. But do they know why? Yeah. Well, and, you know, even uh, well, I mean, we had a conversation this week. We're having a, a memorial service tomorrow at the church for two people who passed, and they were going to put the cremated remains on. They talked to the family, talked about putting the cremated remains on the communion table. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and no, the, the communion table is for one thing, and we do put the Bible on there when we're not having communion, but uh, we don't put other things on the oh, communion table. Right, but that, you know, that is a, th- a thing. I think most people, really, and this is, this is my perception, but, and I may be wrong about this, but I think most people come at the Lord's Supper as a remembrance, primarily. It's a time to remember Jesus 
and that Jesus died for us. I think if they go beyond that, they also use it as a time for self-examination. And I think that's about it. I think that is, I think that is the average person's theology mm-hmm. of the, the Lord's Supper. I think Protestant. You know, Protestant. I think in the, yeah, yeah, Protestant. Yeah, the, yeah, in the Catholic tradition, it's very different. Yeah, but we talked about that a in little. In the Protestant tradition, mm-hmm. I think that is about the extent of people's theology right, of the Lord's right. Supper. Clearly, I mean, it seems by when we look at church attendance, seems to me that even in the churches that have it every week, that they don't feel that they have to, you know, I don't have to be at church right. to have this every right. week. It's right. um, so that's an ob- have, observation. I have been in churches where they had it on the first Sunday of the month, and everybody knew it was on the first Sunday right. of the month, and so people did make an effort to be there for communion. You know, there is also this other thing about that there's something special about communion that they want to have it, but they don't. They if you ask them why, I don't think they could answer the question. Right. Right. It, yeah. Interesting observation i and i wonder for example if you are indeed walking forward do you know of people who do not just automatically get up and go mm-hmm. i mean by and large if you're a member of the church no one is going to have the in today's world they're just going to they're just going to go up and take it i see very few people thinking i i'm not i've i've messed up so much i i shouldn't be right. there there're probably a few but i have i, I have noticed Elders in my church not taking communion. Interesting. And I, I would say probably from that perspective of I'm not worthy, May- which I would disagree with. You know, I mean, right. we're all sinners. Right. We all fall short. Right. That's not the point. We don't have to be perfect to be worthy of the sacrament. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, but if you went back to the days and, you know, the, the this idea of fencing the table was definitely part of the Reformed mm-hmm. tradition. And, you know, they would actually, as you said, examine the, the part of the role of the pastor. And, of course, that that has huge problems in our tradition. I would I think. never do that. I would never oh, presume to who do that. Would and yeah. also, you know, when we talk about a priesthood of all believers, all of a sudden now you've got your pastor up there, mm-hmm. really elevated above everyone else, that they could make that decision yeah. for folks. Well, and for me as a New Testament scholar, you know, one of the things that is very clear in the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, is that the Last Supper. And therefore, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is seen in light of Jesus' other meals that he shared yes, with, yes. with his friends. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the point of that is, whom did Jesus exclude from his table when he shared meals with, you know, yeah. he shared meals with Pharisees, he shared meals, you know, with all kinds of people. He shared me- meal with Judas, when you think about yes, it. Yes, you know. exactly. And so, and so... Um, when you look at it that way, you know, then you know, the whole idea of excluding someone from the Lord's table mm-hmm. just doesn't make it any doesn't sense. doesn't make sense at all right. with, with Jesus, right. the, yeah. you know, with who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. How, how does this, you know, as I'm thinking about, I think many of us would agree in particularly Presbyterian world, but how does this put us in the dialogue with those who are, are Roman Catholic, are, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. You know, I, I, I knew uh, um, 
a man who was Roman Catholic who had been denied at the, at the table mm. for, um, and he literally walked up there and the priest said, no, you can't take it. And he took it anyway. He reached in and took it, you know, so he actually, mm. uh, I thought that was interesting. And of course, if we go to a Roman Catholic service, we can go up and get a blessing and we say, oh, it's a blessing. And, um, and I know people are like, oh, well, that's their tradition. I would love to have a blessing. And, and the last time I'm being honest here. I did this. I did not go up and get the blessing because... I don't see... I mean, to me, I don't see this person as having any special um, agency in being able to bless me. Exactly. In my mind, my blessings come from God, the Father, from Jesus, my Savior, and from the Spirit who gives me new life. Exactly. (laughs) So I just thought that was... you know. So for me, but they were all kind of went up with this... Oh, this is wonderful. And I'm like, I, I'm not in that space. No, no I'm not either. Um, and I don't, you know, frankly, I mean, obviously, you know, um, Presbyterians and, and Roman Catholics have been in theological dialogue for decades. Mm-hmm. And it took, what, 30, 40 years for them to agree to recognize each other's baptisms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. I don't, I, and I don't know, you know, for someone who is, who is steeped in the Catholic tradition that, um, it is the actual consuming of the elements that conveys exactly. grace to you, exactly. saving grace to you. I don't see there being much room for dialogue about that. I, I, I mean, that's, that's... I don't, you know, I don't, and uh, I don't, although I suppose I should never turn down the opportunities to dialogue and sure. to change ideas. But to me, it's very... To me, if I go up and I... I, I take the blessing. It, it somehow acknowledges that I still, I guess I'm visiting their their space, but somehow that it, I mean, some people are like, oh, I want to go dine with them. And I'm like, but their theology is so different. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure I want to be in that space. Now, I have I taken know. communion in an Anglican church. That's but different. I think I think that's okay because in yeah. the Anglican Church, my understanding is you can believe in transubstantiation, you can believe in yeah. in spiritual presence, you can believe in in pure, it is purely symbolic. It you know, and right, everybody right. everybody can participate. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and when it comes to, comes to the Catholic tradition, I, I do think that perhaps the idea of spiritual nourishment might be a point of connection with their theology because i think yeah that's that i there. think that there would see that they would see they would see the mass the eucharist as having a, a, I agree. a sense of spiritual nourishment it, I, I for would the agree. faithful i yeah. would agree yeah absolutely um but i think in our own context and i think in our own context that might be something that we can emphasize more um i, I just to me i come back to grace and i come back to you know this is a way for us to be reminded of God's grace. This is a way for us to experience God's grace. Yeah. And yeah. it is also a call for us to respond to God's grace by how we live right. our lives. Um, and, and so for example, we, we had, we had, um, we had the Lord's supper here on July 4th <laughs> and um, you know, I, I, as you know, I vary up the confessions of faith in right. my in my liturgy uh, from week to week, and uh, there have been times where we have done the Apostles' Creed um, as a symbol of our affirmation right. of the faith of the church. Right. 
Um, this time I took a portion from the directory for worship mm, nice. in, the, in the book of order and used it as a confession. And it basically is this summary that, that I read part of, you know, that mm-hmm. what, what it is that we are doing when we observe right. the Lord's Supper. Right. And I think I'm going to continue to use that on a more regular basis because it's a very succinct yeah, uh, summation of, of, of what we believe um, the Lord's Supper means to us. And, yeah. and I, my hope is that it will help to um, to broaden the people's understanding right. of what we're doing when we when we yeah. observe the sacrament yeah. of the Lord's Supper. I love that. I love that, and um, I think you know to, to conclude on when when we're folks in dialogue with folks who are on on a very different page. You know, I think it's an opportunity to, to invite them to an open table mm-hmm. um, and and to experience God's grace that way. And, and I will uh, say, I will say that folks who have come into the Presbyterian world in my churches from a different tradition, especially from a tradition that had a closed table, mm-hmm. without exception, love the fact that our table is open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree, I yeah. agree. And to me, that, 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 only echoes, mm-hmm. you know, the free gift of grace and the exactly. openness of God's Well, and grace. really who Jesus is, right? Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. So, friends, well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.